0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Echopunks, recorded live in front of an automated audience as Echopunks were people who are interested in ecosystems. And these include environmental ecosystems, political ecosystems, social, cultural, economic ecosystems partly because we feel that by paying attention, it's easier for us to not only understand our world, but to engage it, to support it, to have a, a meaningful life and to help enact positive social change wherever it's possible. And as punks, well, we've got attitude. We're the types of people who think for ourselves, ask questions and really try to understand not just the element of social change, but the larger philosophy, the larger politics, the larger culture in which it takes place. So with these episodes, really, they're just conversations. We like to call them improvised conversations and that they're relatively spontaneous. And today we have a very special guest who I'm going to allow uh, Chris Irwin, the producer of today's segment, to introduce. So I really offered the kind of intro for consistency of the podcast. But really, Chris, you're hosting today. So uh, why don't you take over and and, uh, introduce your guest, introduce why you felt uh, an idea. I agree with you that this would be such a fantastic conversation, fantastic conversation. for it's us to have. It's be a
1: fantastic conversation. So Jess Viancourt of BU Creative Styles in sandy hill ottawa jeff just you realize that by association you're a punk i hope you're okay with that <laughs> uh with that as we as we start off here no so this is yeah. yes no absolutely absolutely so we will and i think that this is a conversation about ecosystems just we'll sort of get into a little bit of sort of what what you're doing with bu creative styles and i think we can talk about so the consignment and all that area too in the conversations that you and i have had <clears throat> i've i come back to the adage of, of like thinking globally and acting locally <laughs> and i think that fits in i think there's some really really neat ground to explore in terms of sort of like what you're actually doing there's a community around you in sandy hill i think it does tie into some pretty pretty big pretty serious sort of environmental and social and economic issues and all that sort of stuff but just to impose a teeny bit of structure on this improv, improvised discussion just can you back i know this isn't your first location can you just kind of walk us through as much an intro as you want, but I'm curious to sort of how we, like how we got here. I'm always, I think the history sort of informs where we go, like the president sort of where we go from here, but is that, a, is that a clear setup for you to sort of get going and just sure. say, uh, d- describe a little bit of sort of like your journey to get here, if that's okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was 2017. Um, that I started working in a consignment store in my own neighborhood not far from here, um, just over in New Edinburgh. Um, I had never worked in fashion. I had no idea what I was doing, but it was a really great experience because the owner there was really willing to tell me all about it. Um, And on a really, like, beginner level, tell me about all the brand names that there were out there. So I got a crash course on um, fashion. Um, So it started there and that particular job didn't have much to do with the environment um, and sustainability, even though it was already trending that way a little bit with the secondhand market, that particular job was not really related. Um, So I just enjoyed the idea of being in this creative environment where, um, you know, old things things were were being being valued, valued and, There were the really amazing designer pieces that I could see the value of. Um, And then I noticed this adorable little business for sale um, outside of Ottawa in Carp, where I had been a few times. um, And the owner wanted to move on to other things and was selling her shop. Um, So I never imagined I would own a business and just immediately thought, this is something I want to do. Because I love my current job so much and I've learned a lot about how to do it. I think I could go out on my own. It was Timing was perfect for my life. Yeah. I had two little kids who were just going to school and I had more time and wanted to regain some of that independence. Um, and so I bought the business and uh, started commuting from where I was half an hour or more every day <laughs> um, out to CARP in this little town just to see if I could hack it as a business owner. Um, and there too was a, a nice sense of community. We thought at the time that I might, we might move to the country. I grew up out in the country, the little, you know, wild child. And I loved it. And I thought, oh, that would be great. I Maybe we'll go and my kids can run around in the woods. <laughs> in the woods. And um, that never happened. Uh, but we did... Uh, have a nice time being in a tiny little rural town. Um, And I built a really strong, that was amazing to me how quickly people flocked to this new little business there and were curious about what I was doing and the way I changed it from what the previous owner had done. And within a couple of months, I had like 300 clients and I, I was amazed, I thought, there's no way existing clients had to have been the maximum for carp. Um, so I think people are really drawn to the idea of this sure. business where they can contribute.
1: Let me, and just, um, and I enjoyed
2: that, but then of course, yeah,
1: no, I was going to, I, I have a really bad habit of, um, smiling and then people don't know why i'm smiling uh so just okay. there's a there's a geographic connection you've spoken very lovingly about sort of the country and carp just so you know for full disclosure Janet, murley and jesse are all is it my geography gets really weak. is it it's not Armpire, almont almont oh. and almont sort of is that in the greater carp area they're outside of this down the road, down the road effectively. So there you go. So Jess, you didn't you didn't cool. know that had you had you slammed the areas outside of Ottawa, you wouldn't have made a lot of friends with our punks here. But thank you very much for speaking <laughs> no, kindly. Not
2: to. <laughs> such an important part of for sure. <laughs> such an important part of the history of this store. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. and I I was about to say how, how I would never have made it had I been in this location. Uh, in my opinion. I wouldn't have made it if I had been in this location during the pandemic. Um, my expenses are just much higher here. So, yeah,
1: because this is yes. So you're in your location since the uh, since the pandemic. Um, yes, and this is also I've all this full disclosure. I feel I have to bear all my. So my daughter Hannah has the has the good fortune of working with Jess and just uh, Hannah and I went to, we had dinner in your location when it was a Spanish restaurant before you were there. And that was, I think that was just as we were emerging for the pandemic. So there's a whole lot of small history going on here. Um, So this is just to pick up on that point. uh, I think that when you talk about the consignment business and you, you, you spoke about that before, one of the things that occurred to me is you were saying sort of the pass off from your previous boss, if I understood correctly. I think that you'll confirm this with me you have to have, once you have like a really deep understanding of something, you can actually explain it quite simply. And I think sometimes people go, you know what, it's a little too complicated. Potentially is a, is a confession that you don't understand it that well. Was that your experience with your previous boss? Like just sort of really knew everything so it could kind of boil it down and, and pass that wisdom off to you fairly effectively?
2: Um, yeah, when I was with her, she had been doing that for 16 years yep. uh, at least she worked in the store before buying it also was her history with that store um so i was only there six months before buying my own business and heading off on my own um but it gave me enough knowledge to to really successfully do this type of work um yeah
1: so, so let me if and then and there's uh, i think that Jesse's gonna, Jesse, you can moderate if hands go up. And I think Jeanette and Murley, I know everybody well enough here that they'll jump in if they have anything that is interesting or wanna learn more about. But just, why don't you talk to us just a little bit, I think that, that sort of the consignment business, and I think that your point of like, it was easier to manage during the pandemic because expenses were lower when you were in CARP. But just talked a little bit about sort of I don't know, like, like I think all these businesses are like how it, how it works. I know that consignment take different, different flavors, but do you mind just giving us a bit of insight in terms of like the nuts and bolts of how, how a business like yours actually runs?
2: Yeah, it's something I can talk for hours about, but I'll try and boil it down. <laughs> so consignment, when I explain it to, for example, the younger generation that I have here in San Diego, yep. they are not familiar with traditional consignment um so the job i had before and the business i had in carp, most of my clients and customers were from a generation that knew consignment to be something pretty specific and that was that people would make an appointment create an account there'd be lots of rules about what they could bring a lot of times the rule was nothing older than three years um the split is usually 40 60 so the client gets 40. um but spots fill up and then um you know so it becomes this kind of complicated have to have an appointment have to make it in at a certain time for the season um have to go find my own things if i want to pick up have to um you know have them all be sometimes hung up perfectly, have them dry cleaned. Like there's, if you get into what traditionally it was a designer label only situation, um, that was the expectation because everyone going to the consignment store really wanted to make a profit. Um, So it created this kind of very,
1: it, it almost sounds. environment,
2: right?
1: And I think it almost sounds to me like it's like it's that dress that I only want to wear once to a cocktail party because my friends will recognize it, or this stuff that I yeah. was given to me and I don't like, or I outgrew. So there's a very, like, sort of a a yeah. small sliver and almost a like a elite is not the right word, but it seems like it's that kind of closets that you're cleaning out. If that's if I've understood what you said correctly.
2: Yeah. So not there's anything wrong with yes. that. And, but uh, what I believe is that that is sort of dying out yeah. because there are so many people in the secondhand market and world now. Sure. Um, a lot of them I realized didn't even really know how consignment used to work. All these people selling clothes secondhand were not aware of what consignment really meant, um, which was kind of amazing to me because that's where I started. I was like, how can you not know that that's how it's been going for generations? Um, but, Then, once I realized all of that, I wanted to combine everything that I understood about resellers and markets and thrifting and vintage with what I understood about consignment. And so now I have very few rules. When I am accepting, people can just drop in whenever, because to me, it's a whole different world. People are way too busy to have to worry about a specific appointment. My experience in the other shop was that a lot of appointments were missed because it just wasn't high priority to people. But then there was a lot of frustration. Um, <clears throat> and then, like I said, a very high expectation of how much money they would get. So some stores used to even sit with their clients and go through pricing piece by piece. <laughs> piece. Um, so I don't do that at all. And from the get go, there's a very clear understanding I'm in this for the environment. And yeah. to help you, and I will get you the best I can, but it's not about how much money we make.
1: Yeah, well, that's going to be it's gonna be part of it. But I think even as you go through, like, the – as and you talked about these, like, sort of the distinct buckets. Like, it's the vintage and the thrifting. And I think that, again, tell me about this because I think that there's a – you talk about younger people. There's been such a push of sort of the fast fashion and disposable fashion. And I think I read somewhere that one of the things that – and I – i think i hope i'm not misrepresenting this but i think that by, as a design feature zara's clothes were designed to be worn five times before they started to wear out because the assumption was the season had changed and you'd be on with something else and you wouldn't even notice because you're only going to wear it three times so that's i think that's stuff that sort of happened i'm thinking maybe over like i don't know 12 15 years but that sort of potentially pushed a business like yours into a new space i've Tell me if you can you're welcome to build on or push back against anything I've just said, Jess. It's
2: it's a pretty complex yes, that's true. Of course, they aren't designed necessarily to last, but I'd say that's combined with a generation that doesn't know how to take care of clothing and do laundry and Man. you know, it's just um those things pile on. It's 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 very complicated. And every brand is different. And it's not that Zara's clothing is really that bad. Um, I go through these things because people have these perceptions now. Yep. They've been told fast fashion, it's the devil. And I, I agree, it's, it's not good. Um, but bottom line is, how much are you buying? Are you taking care of it? Do you know how to take care of it? Yep. Uh, you know, it's just like any other thing we consume um it doesn't matter how much you've paid for something which is why i don't have any rules about what comes in here i'm happy yeah. to resell fast fashion pieces yeah. in my experience i wear them and yeah. they usually wash just fine they last <laughs> they wear you can still look at the materials that's something i um value highly yeah. and i had a really cool conversation with a girl yesterday who worked at a value village. Okay. And I picked your brain a little bit about the sorting process because I know a bit about it from reading and more than the average person. Um, And I'm not actually entirely against value village. Sure, I can expand but so it's um, they when they sort they do actually look at the materials she said, their guideline for pricing They are told to look at what things are made out of and those that are made from cotton or linen or, um, tensile or whatever are valued higher, even at Value Village,
1: Yeah, which is cool. Just for, for segmenting, there's a, in, so I'm, uh, North Toronto and just near us, they've, I, the first time I've seen this, there's a Value Village boutique, which is sort of upscale Value Village, which made me chuckle
3: because it's, (laughs) I know, <laughs> but you I see know, that also at the um, at the thrift You're stores. Go. Sorry, I was just going to jump in. The you know the big Salvation Army one down, uh, I think on, it's like Jarvis and Dundas maybe, yep. uh, which was my favorite in Toronto. Yep. they have a, a boutique section as well where they their finest vintage. Like it's a curated collection of their their vintage stuff.
1: I think that one of the like one of one of the the draws to vintage is finding the stuff that no one's found yet. Like yeah. this is you're gonna find the pair of jeans that's three dollars, but you're like, wow! If I wash these and put a patch on them, either I'm gonna wear them and they're really cool, or I can sell them for 185 bucks because they're a vintage thing. I think that that's it's funny that these. Uh, companies have sort of taken they go through it first to find the treasures <laughs> rather than letting the masses see through and find the stuff there But that's- well and
0: and and i i have a related question i don't know if like u of o has a fashion program but to what extent you know do you find people who are trying to remix and are looking you know for elements not literally that they're going to wear but they might uh, again, y- use as some part of creative exp- exploration because that's what I'm starting to see in terms of like a neo, I, and, and I, there are lots of fashion movements. This is just the one that caught my eye today of a uh, kind of neo-hippie movement, except the clothes were completely different, right? Like they were clearly using vintage clothes, but they were making it into new clothes in terms of the way that, you know, y- you might take a classic rock song and remix it into a techno song and so are are you observing that at all or are these mostly people who are just buying the clothes straight up to
1: wear the clothes are you are you enabling that jess go ahead
2: um i am enabling that for sure because i have here in the store right behind my computer i'm at a desk that normally has two sewing machines and a serger and all the supplies to work on things um which i created in the beginning as more of a repair station for all the things that come in here that. I feel can be saved with just a little bit of work. Um, But the station here in Sandy Hill has attracted a couple of people who've used it um, for reworking um, clothes that they want to design on their own. Um, I don't carry, I don't have a huge space. So most of my things are in pristine condition. (laughs) So it would be a little bit weird for them to chop them up. but. definitely there are people who come and who I see that that's what they're doing because you can find all those things so easily in the Salvation Armies and Value Village here. But
3: yeah. In, in Pretty in Pink, uh, where Molly Ringwald's character ruins a perfectly lovely vintage gown, in my opinion, <laughs> to remix it into her own look. Uh, but uh, so there is a precedent for sure. For yeah, yeah. I was a big
2: fan right around the time I started was when um Girl Boss was big with Sophia Amoruso. Um and it was all over Netflix. So there's a big part of that story where she wanted to chop everything. Well, she did. It's a real life story, obviously. She she chopped things up and sold them on eBay and that yeah. was kind of the beginning of that.
1: Yeah. There's, there's always a destructive element to art, right? That's the whatever creative destruction or whatever they, uh, whatever they call it. Um, just, I'm just in the spirit of sort of ecosystems here. I'm, um, this is last, I think it was earlier this year, no, obviously last year. Um, there was a, there's a big vintage store or vintage show in Toronto and we went and there was a group, there was a, there was three young women who had built a business. I, I can't remember their name, but you may know them and they built they made really cool bags out of old varsity sweatshirts. And I'm assuming that they probably got a deal on stuff that the, the, the school had changed their colors or changed their logos. And they were really, really cool. They didn't look yeah. neo-hippie. They looked really cool. And I'm assuming yeah. that there's a whole lot of different kind of makers or stuff that sort of plug into you. Describe a little bit. And I think I, I almost picture you in the retail space as being sort of a, I don't know a platform almost for these people or, or the potential for that. Talk to us a little bit about that if uh, if you can.
2: Uh, yeah, I definitely um, sell locally made things right alongside all of the secondhand stuff. Um, environmentally speaking, it always made sense to me to make sure that those who were brave enough to make their own things to try and sell them had a platform at the store too. Um, so I have sold handmade bags over the years. I have sold um, clothing from two or three different resellers. One of them was definitely a um, piece it together. He was taking um, like tail end bits of fabric from companies that were going to throw it away and then combining it with like men's shirts to create a skirt, say, where he was using everything, including the cuffs of the shirt as pockets and cool stuff like that. Um, So I have always been here to support those endeavors. Okay. Um and they've always been expensive because they're so time consuming. Um, but most people uh can appreciate that now. I don't know if I'm in the right neighborhood here for people to afford that, to right. be honest.
1: Yep.
2: Um so so far my experience is it might not it's different than Toronto, I'd say. <laughs> I don't think I can sell a five hundred dollar yeah,
1: upcycled skirt. Not a bad thing to be doing. Um,
2: despite it cool. being that's such really a cool <laughs> thing.
3: Can I? Can I jump in for a second? Yeah, please. So I, you know, I think it's fascinating just what you're doing in terms of, you know, kind of rethinking this, the business model here. But the thing that I was really taken with when I first heard about what you're doing with the store is the degree to which you are also very much creating a third space. In a community hub, and um, and that's the the thing I would really love to hear more about because uh, it it's you know often the cynical take is well you know business doesn't mix with these kinds of endeavors um, yet you seem to be pulling it off um, so Chris sorry but I just I would love to drive things that way.
1: Sort of connects to I think that just the there's yeah. a lot of people obviously selling online. You have a brick and mortar store which is expensive, but yeah, I think that the, the I know that Jeanette listened to the clip on Men Night, so go ahead, yeah. just tell us about the, yeah. the community so connection as
2: opposed to maybe selling those upcycled pieces. I'm encouraging people to bring their project with them, and then um, twice a month, usually, I empty the main part of the store upstairs and set up up a big table um with all of the supplies that i have um available for people to use either mend their clothes or create something new um, it's free uh, if there's anything that people need i go out of my way to make sure that it's here um, and yeah it's it's been really fun i think so far we've probably i've been trying to keep count of how many pieces um have been mended or made every time and i think we're
1: up to like 85 it's pretty good yeah i'm reminded of the uh the the posters that you'd see like by the photocopier that talked about how many trees were saved when we recycle so you could have the same sort of thing of how many new purchases we've saved because we've mended just you, you made a list of sort of i think um things that contribute to sort of wear and tear on clothes and it was taking care of them and washing them i'm assuming mending is one of those yeah. things that you're sort of reheating yeah. as a skill and probably telling people how to like how to thread a needle and what's fixable and how exactly. to. exactly so most
2: thing. i'd say most of the people who show up for men night are pretty inexperienced and need help learning the basics so it's not a class per se but i'm there and then a friend of mine um, stephanie usually comes to help sort of instruct and guide people in learning those basics um but overall i would say this this generation your daughter included um are much braver in saying okay i'm just gonna go for it no problem i could thread this needle and where do i stitch how do i how do i work this sewing machine um and they'll just go for it um yeah Yeah. it's how i was but i i know it wasn't usually it was much more structured and no. you learn the basics and you follow the pattern and you pin it well, here. And,
1: right. yeah.
0: and, and and to your point, I mean, do you think that's uh, and and maybe this is the wrong word, a, a maturation of the D, of the do it yourself culture? Because like I remember in the early days of DIY, to your point, we were weirdos. Like most people didn't think of doing it that way. It, it was still assumed <laughs> that you would go. Right. And and so are, are you seeing a kind of you know, generational change or a cultural in which DIY becomes more normal or more accepted?
2: Yes. Um, I mean, I. it sounds like you, you might all have children, but I, I know my children who are only 10 and 12 are spending a lot of time on Pinterest looking at all the things that they can make and are constantly trying to make things at home. Everything from beauty products to sewing and beyond. Yeah.
0: Right on.
3: Well, I think to, to go back to just what you were saying earlier, that there, was, there were real barriers to entry uh, in terms of sewing, because it was so technically formidable, right? The idea that, oh, well, you need to achieve competence in all of these diverse areas, like just pattern making is so daunting, right? And I mean, if we just put that aside for a second, even just any kind of basic tailoring you know, it's enough to put people off. Um, so I think it's really interesting that what you're describing is a just a kind of a totally different ethos, um, maybe a more adventurous spirit, you know, willingness to, quote, unquote, fail, you know, to experiment, to just see what happens um, rather than, than this pressure to, no, no, there's only one way to do this. And it requires all these steps and you have to master every stage along the way.
2: Yeah.
1: No, I'm, I'm, yeah. even when um even when people have have the means to buy a new pair of pants right maybe there's a there's an appetite to let out a ham or take a ham or, or do something and i think that sometimes we we the the sort of back to sort of the cheap fast fashion thing like i don't need to wash this i can buy another t-shirt for three dollars and it's gonna look fine for three wears and you get into that kind of almost the the disposable fashion thing, um, Jess. It's like you're. I think you're you're a counter to that, and I think it's sort of like back to sort of just old school stuff. Like like buy quality, take care of it, and it'll look good for years to come. Which I think, and you talked about sort of what what's resonating with young people and bringing people to your community. I'm assuming you're going to get a whole lot of that that people are interested in that among all the other things that we've mentioned here uh, here this afternoon.
2: oh sorry the other thing that i um, sort of specialize in is getting people to really try more interesting and unique pieces because i curate things that are quite different um i've been told (laughs) that even though i dress a bit conservative um (laughs) i've been told that the things i sell i have a reputation if they need something that is kind of really offbeat or weird this is where (laughs) they'll find it um so i get people outside their comfort zone to to try different a lot of different things um because i carry everything from baby to you know things i think will appeal to a much older generation so anything goes
4: well i am uh very much a consumer of vintage clothing this sweater is actually vintage so to speak um but I, what I've been thinking about is sort of the, the fast fashion versus, you know, maybe functional fashion. And I think one of the benefits I do see with some vintage clothing, at least, is that it is a little more durable uh, and or, you know, functional. So I have this coat that I've been wearing here on the farm to do, uh, you know, farm work. So it gets a fair bit of, you know, hard use. And... I've I've had it for about three years now, and it's served me well, but it is full of holes and falling apart. And I think even when I bought it uh, secondhand, it it was already quite tattered. Um, But I've been thinking that, you know, I could definitely revitalize this coat by just adding a few patches here and there. I just don't really have the skills um, or necessarily resources to do that myself. So I think it's really interesting that you're offering that kind of opportunity for young people or just people in general. And it reminds me of sort of the right to repair movement. And you've seen that a lot with electronics and it may be fading more now where, you know, there's places you can go to get your electronics fixed or, or learn to do so. Um, But I, I haven't heard about that as much with fashion. I think there is much more of a culture of, just buying something new and and or, you know, the hand-me-down. I think sometimes people use secondhand stores as, you know, a way to just an excuse to go buy new clothes, right? Because you can give away your old clothes and have the assumption that someone else will use them eventually.
2: Okay. So there's like a lot to unpack in that. Yes. A, the code is awesome, <laughs> although maybe repair the holes before they get bigger. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, B, yes, people are are using um, thrift stores, some people are using as a way to just, they can just throw out their old stuff and grab a bunch of cheap new stuff. Um, But it's still staying within that cycle, which is cool. Um, And then the right to repair for me is an interesting because my favorite book I've read so far about the whole movement, like globally, is called Secondhand... The global garage sale or something. And he does talk quite a bit about the right to repair with technology. Um, but then a lot of the book deals with textiles and clothing, which I was surprised actually. Um, and so there was a big movement after the collapse of the, um, factory in india if you Remember that was yeah. also around the time i went into business yep. um so there was an organization that started called the fashion revolution um and they were fighting fast fashion as much as they could through social media um, and other ways too a lot of events around the world um, and then once that sort of faded a little bit they switched to um loved clothes last being their main hashtag where they were encouraging people to get together and do things like the men night that I'm doing. So I'm not at all creating something new. I'm just doing here in Ottawa what I already knew was a part of the next phase of the fashion revolution.
0: Well, and and to that point, let me ask you a question in terms of like the, the numbers around the consignment folks. Like how, if if you were, you know, and, and again, we're just like as a guesstimate, what is the kind of network or community that exists you know are, are around your shop like are you are 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 there regulars are there one time right like what are the kind of relationships that you have with these people i mean you mentioned the kind of some of the local folks but I assume also it's, it's you know, students, right? It's maybe government folks who, you know, are, are living in Ottawa for while Parliament's in session and then going back to somewhere else in Canada. So to what extent is it kind of a stable network versus a dynamic network? And, and what is your conception of it? Like, how do you imagine the, the folks that you're dealing with or are they just the folks who just show up and you don't even, you look more at the clothes rather than the people? <laughs>
2: Okay, so my memory for clothing is better than people, but I care so much about what I'm doing. I found that unlike any other job I'd had in this job, I can really remember most people pretty well. And I have a lot of return customers who I have built strong relationships with, including people who have followed me here from carp, (laughs) which was a real gamble because they tend to not want (laughs) to come into the city. And I was amazed that many of them have made the trek out to see the new store, some of them multiple times. Um, So that was really amazing to know that they cared enough about what I was doing, Um, not just me personally, but I think the whole endeavor of running this secondhand store, that they were invested in seeing it succeed. And then here in Sandy Hill, I have quickly developed um, a lot of new relationships that I think will last also. Um, journalists who've helped me do other stories like the CBC um, interview about my mend nights, um, a journalist who comes to every mend night and works on things. And so they, I think, understand the importance of keeping this conversation going and seeing the business succeed I would be happy if there were many more people doing what I do. There is so much stuff and so much clothing out there. Even if we stopped manufacturing, I would see more of these businesses as a plus. I cannot possibly handle what comes in here. I also mentioned to you guys before this doing this, that I can go from having someone who's very sweet and just brings me five lovely little things to someone who is just emptied like an entire house and will bring 10 garbage bags thinking that they're helping me. Right. (laughs) So, um, and I, you know, am just clear with them on, I will deal with this as I go and you'll get what I can in the next six months after that, you know, I'll deal with this, however. And then I work with a charity, so I I obviously can't take all 10 bags. So I go through, and then the rest goes to a charity that I um, have had since the beginning. They're next to a food bank out uh, in Carp, and they give things away for free. Right on.
3: Yeah. I I have a follow-up question. I You know, Jess, I'm curious. We talked about how the the mending get-togethers – you know, are empowering in that they are sort of changing people's, uh, you know, it it demystifies working with clothes or creating clothes. But I'm curious if you're also seeing that the activity of mending is changing uh, people's psychological relationship to clothes. Because I find, you know, one of the things that really shifted when people stopped making their own clothes was that um, suddenly it became about your body having to fit in whatever you know, was available to you rather than the clothes being fitted to your body. So your body becomes the problem, right? In that system. It's it's not, oh this this shirt isn't right because it's it doesn't quite it's not quite tailored right to me. It's more I'm too fat or I'm too short or I'm too skinny or my waist isn't long enough or whatever because this piece of clothing that I pulled off a rack isn't sitting on my body correctly. Where and mending or alteration, right, is is part of coming back to that, no, the clothing can be changed to accommodate my difference.
2: Yeah, um, I I think it's a good point. I certainly have had situations where um, a, a younger person is trying something and they now feel that they are capable of, you know, I'm gonna add this to the waist to make it work for me. And they're, they don't seem bothered by the situation at all. Um, but uh, more so than that, I would say there's a shift toward people expecting the clothing that's out there to fit them and be large enough. <laughs> I don't come across too many people who feel I don't know how to put this. It's Especially being in this neighborhood with the university here, um, University of Ottawa, uh, I see the next generation being more comfortable in their bodies than ever before, as far as I can tell. Um, And it makes it nicer when they shop. Uh, I keep things organized by size here. And the younger generation doesn't seem to care what size they're looking at, right? They'll just go right through the whole rack, extra small to extra large. They really don't care, which is absolutely the best way to shop. Um, It's not, it's the other generations that I notice have a real issue with the sizes, the way that I have them. Um, And I still waver sometimes when I go through that with a customer Because, but I it's because I have everything from vintage to new. The only way I can do it is where it's by measure more, but I still put a dress size on the sizing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered that question, but the younger generation I I feel could care less what's on the tag. Um, And then,
0: and and it it brings up. a kind of interesting dynamic because it feels like on the one hand, one of the undercurrents of our discussion today has been literacy, right? The literacy of how to mend stuff, the literacy of how to take care of clothes. But then the flip side is, you know, the the lack of body shaming or the literacy of how to dress yourself, right? Under your terms and and in a way that makes you feel comfortable about your size, where I kind of feel those of us who are of a certain vintage, uh, we had the literacy of how to take care of stuff. We had the literacy of kind of, you know, ha- how to, to buy clothes, but we didn't have the literacy of how to make our own style, uh, of, of how to adapt and, and be comfortable wearing whatever clothes fits us or whatever clothes we like. So it, it is an interesting kind of reversal in in terms of the knowledge that people bring to it. And and it, it, it leads to sort of the question of, You know, how do you feel like we started this conversation by kind of talking about your origins and how you sort of ended up in the position you are. And what was interesting is you almost told it as a story of knowledge, right, that, you know, with each experience, you were sort of learning more and more about how you wanted to run the business and how you could run the business as you continue to engage with people, as you continue to sort of, you know, young and old, because the other thing I've liked about this conversation is how you've kind of contrasted very respectfully the different dynamics of different demographics in your customers. So what kind of knowledge are you getting from this kind of experience, from this community experience? Because part of it's clearly a a really smart understanding of fashion and, and of clothes, but I assume it's also an understanding of the people who you're dealing with and, and the way in which they're choosing stuff. So I'd, I'd love to hear any insights you have on kind of what you're seeing in, uh, through this lens that you're using in terms of, you know, a, a secondhand clothes and, and, and recycling fashion. Because I I thought your point about if we stopped manufacturing clothes right now we'd still be good, like that to me is a really interesting policy idea. Or you know around there with stopping fossil fuels, right? Of of stopping us from producing so much stuff that just ends up in landfills. Sorry, I'm happen. rambling. Go ahead.
2: It could happen. Um, on a side note, they just announced that in um, I think all of Europe they have banned the destruction of um, of. Unused unsold clothing like from the larger companies the way they used to Chop things up so they couldn't be reused. That's no longer allowed in Europe. Not that it won't happen, but it's a big change <laughs> It's a big change. So, you know big changes can can happen um, Yes, I have uh, definitely been studying the way people shop secondhand for six years I've been doing this and um I find it fascinating and uh, love it, but I very, very meaningfully chose this particular location as a place I wanted to be um, because I was able to be out in Carp for a while and to sort of formulate this idea, and through the pandemic was a huge part of it. I was forced into doing pop-up shops in various places in the city and uh, chose to do markets because it was where more like-minded people were during those times. Um, And that really helped me formulate a plan of where I wanted to be in terms of a neighborhood that would bring a variety of people, students, to families, to government workers, to lower income, to higher income. Um, It's all here in Sandy Hill. so I did that very purposefully. Uh, and it's not that this sort of business can't succeed in other places. Um, but I found that day to day conversations I had with people would be different depending on the neighborhood.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Which I yeah, so um, <laughs> this is what I what I like most about. What I do and the ability to bring all of those different people together uh, but it wouldn't necessarily be like that in every neighborhood
1: well and justin that's no mean achievement because i think that you think of sort of ideas that sort of unify people and people can get together around food or get together but i think that that fashion is one of those things and i just think of times when my kids were old enough to want to go to the mall all five of us would go to different stores, right and I think that you and this is—I think this is very, very impressive. And you shine a light on it, and I'll just pay you the the compliment back of how how I'm not—you'll not, you'll know how difficult it was to achieve, but to have that intersection that is socioeconomic, as well as age and interest. And I think that probably if you find people that are—you—you you, you mentioned sort of markets with like like-minded people, and I'm going to guess that even within that like-mindedness, there's different things that are that are fundamentally important to people, right? We don't have to pick one, but there's an environmental sort of angle to this. There's a sort of fair manufacturing and work practices angle to this. There's just there's a bunch of different places that people could come at you. And I think that Jeanette mentioned earlier, so you're creating like a third space. It's, it's a neat one. And I think that Starbucks coined the third space and it almost seems to me like a place you'd go to be by yourself among others or be with someone else among others. But it sounds like yours is a place to go and you can't, like, yeah, you're gonna be connecting with other people and you will have to let Merley know when to bring his code in. It's Tuesdays, right? Is men night?
2: Yeah. Right during a snowstorm tomorrow. Yes, Again. <laughs> uh every other Tuesday. Yes.
1: <laughs> this is so just the only thing you sort of you sort of you've alluded to this a little bit, and I um I really, really like what you're doing because it seems to me that you are very, very happy with where you are. And also very happy if other people are doing it. And I think that this is often, I probably spent too much time in business schools where people just want to grow or they get really afraid of competition. And you have like a nice comfort there. With that said, any ideas? Like, are, is there is there anywhere you want to take this or you want things to, to go? And if you're totally cool with where you are, that's totally cool. But help me out if there's a little bit of, if you can look into the crystal ball of what's coming up. Um... I think you've answered my question. I would be
2: happy here. I would be happy. I mean, I'm only a year in, in this location, but I, <laughs> um, you know, if I were to like dream really big, there were times when I was like, I wish I had a whole warehouse and then was working with other resellers who had their own sections. Right. And that sort of idea has been done in antique malls, usually yep. more, but could be done in just clothing. Um, but uh
0: I mean, I, yeah. the, the crazy opportunity there, and I say this because to your point, you know, we're talking ludicrous dreams. So it'll probably never happen. The government of Canada has got a lot of excess real estate in downtown Ottawa, right? <laughs> and they've got to use that space for something. And this is the kind of, you know, uh, 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 a positive policy they could get behind. But again, I'm thinking out loud, but there, there could be a lot of space in the neighborhood that could be available.
1: For those garbage bags of clothes (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome um uh jeanette or jesse or merely anything else that you wanted to uh to ask uh jess or anything that you want to shine a light on i think i'm just i'm getting the sense that just for time wise and also we've covered a lot of ground and jess thank you very much for your time jeanette anything you wanted to i mean just
3: offhand the one thing this is completely selfish but it sounds like you have been in many ways a one woman show i mean this is Really, you know, you just have been behind this. These have been your ideas, your experiments. Uh, you know, would you be open to collaborations in the future? Um, I, it's a huge
2: commitment owning the business. So mm-hmm. I do that mostly on my own. My family is very supportive. Um, I already do collaborate though. Uh, I currently have two resellers who sell their things here in the store and exchange for working a day or two a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and their things are fully branded as their reseller uh, logo and brand.
0: Uh, and, and I'm conscious of the fact that we are kind of running out of time, but that's a fascinating idea to sort of use labor and their labor as part of the relationship. I mean, it, uh, very quickly, where did you get that idea? And do you think about expanding it? Cause you know, especially given the students kind of in your neighborhood it seems like a a, a really smart way to to make do with less as it were
2: um yes i will probably look for one or two more resellers to collaborate with um they still have to be quite trusting because i like things to really flow here so it's got a you know the price point has to be similar to what i do which doesn't always work because i'm a bit on the low end um but yeah i i definitely i i think there were so many resellers during the pandemic that if they want to keep going they may need to find routes like this to keep their brand going because they can't devote as much time um yeah so I, I will continue to do that. And it's also not a, an original, that's sort of the way those antique malls usually work. They have a, a booth or a section of stairs and then they have to work um, the counter part of the time. Yeah.
1: You'll see Merley on Tuesday, one, one Tuesday <laughs> with his with this jacket. And I think just one of your policies if I understand correctly is nothing is beyond repair.
2: Yes. So I have said that. I would like to amend it just like <laughs> maybe not your socks and underwear.
1: Oh, everything yeah.
2: else.
1: Yes, everything else. small print. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, for the time. I've I've really enjoyed learning about this. I always enjoy the conversations with uh, with our friends here you'll keep us posted. And you, I think, I think Jesse, I hope I don't want to speak on behalf of the Echo Punks, but Jess is welcome back anytime to uh, to share stories or ask questions or participate in other discussions. Jesse, I'll throw it back to you. If there's anything, you've had the applause. If there's anything we need to do to, to shut this down, you can oh,
4: take closing ceremonies.
0: Other than to thank all of you, I thought this is really a, a fantastic uh, discussion. Thank you, Jess. This is, uh, you, you are clearly really generous with your knowledge and time and you know at the same end I hope you are, uh, feel that that generosity is reciprocated uh not so much by us but by the people you work with and and that was really uh what I found most fascinating by this because you know if it takes a village to raise a child it takes a community to support a small business especially one like your own and uh if there's anything we can ever do for you please let us know but uh, I I know I feel uh, very much richer as a result from learning from your experience so thank you, thank you very much Thank you And with that said, uh, this is the end of another episode Uh, uh, we will have a link uh, to Jess's Instagram and her store in the show notes Uh, if there's anything you would like to respond to, by all means echopunks.live or tell us off on your favorite social media platform and uh, thanks again, watch out for the winner it's right around the corner, probably happening tomorrow (laughs)